Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. And now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Some churches actually coach their people up to smile really big on Sunday mornings when you're at church. The reasoning is that if visitors come and they see people smiling, they'll say, ooh, I want what they have, and they'll come back again. Uh, If they see people who aren't smiling, they'll say, I don't want anything like those people have, and they won't come back anymore. Uh, Maybe you visited a church like that. You walk through the front doors, and you're like, did I just step onto a movie set? How are these people all so happy? What's wrong with me that I'm not so happy, right? If you've been here so far during Advent, you know we take a little bit of a different approach here at North Sub. Um, we kind of feel like we're a congregation that, uh, whose lives aren't all rainbows and butterflies. And um, we kind of think it's appropriate and uh, even important for us to acknowledge as much, both privately in our own relationships with God, but corporately as well as we come together for worship. Um, but we recognize that that's not comfortable for everybody. I had some great conversations with some of you in the past weeks. Uh, two weeks ago, I shared a spoken word poem like the one Josh just shared. Um, and it had some hope at the end, but not before a good amount of despair. And some of you were honest enough to share with me. I, I, was, I was uncomfortable hearing my pastor talk like that from the stage um, and, the, and that despair. Um, and I think I might feel the same way in your shoes, but where we are as a church is that we kind of feel like when we look at the scriptures that God's people are honest with him about where they're at. David in the Psalms is not just playing a character for effect, but this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And in this brokenness, part of our experience here on this earth is that we experience anguish from time to time. And so in the Christian tradition, Advent has always been a time of waiting. It's a time of waiting in two parts, as you've heard today. It's waiting for the celebration of Jesus' birth when he came to initiate setting all things right. And it's also thinking about our present situation as we're waiting for his return when he'll come back and finish what he started and make all things right once and for all. In today's scripture text, which was read so well by Eric and Stephanie a moment ago, we're going to join God's people in a worship service. And it's not one of those worship services where everybody plasters on their smiles. It's a worship service that has some of the loudest rejoicing and the most desperate wailing all taking place at the same time as God's people live in the tension between what he has already accomplished and what he has not yet accomplished. So would you turn there to Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, if you're not already there? As you're turning to Ezra 3, let me give us a little bit of background so... We know what's going on in Ezra. God's people, Israel, were in slavery in Egypt. And under Moses, they were brought out and brought to the promised land. And in this promised land, they eventually settled down. And under a king, King Solomon, they built a temple where God's presence would dwell with them permanently. But over time, they kept rebelling against this God. And then God kept his promise that if they continued persisting in rebelling against him, that he would send them out of their land and allow the temple to be destroyed. He'd send them into exile in foreign nations. That's exactly what happened. But 
in their exile, they cried out to God, asking for relief and asking for him to bring them back. And that's when he kept the second half of his promise, that if they cried out, he would bring them back to their homelands and restore their temple once again. So that's where we are in Ezra chapter 3. The first wave of exiles has come back home. And they're back in their land again. They're so excited about it. And earlier in this chapter, they've built an altar so that they can begin worshiping their God again. And now as we pick up in verse 8, they're ready to lay the foundation for the temple once again. I don't need to read this text again because it was read so uh, well just a few moments ago. But as we walk back through it, I want to show you there's four prominent features of this text uh, that are experiences of God's people that I think we share today. Um, So the first one will be presence, then obedience, then worship, then waiting. And we'll take those in turn. Let's start with presence. What we see in this text is that God's presence is the great treasure that's worth seeking above all else. God's presence is the great treasure worth seeking above all else. If you scan the passage again, verses 8 through 13 of chapter 3, you see that the desperate desire of these people was to see their temple rebuilt. But the reason they wanted to see their temple rebuilt was not because they wanted to see the pretty stones stacked on each other. It wasn't because they wanted to see the nice colorful decorations in the temple or the uh, utensils, the tools that were used that were made out of precious metals. The reason that they wanted the temple again, first and foremost, was that the temple was the meeting place between God and humanity. In other words, what they were seeking most of all in wanting to rebuild the temple is God's presence. The temple was the place on earth, the one place on earth, where the God of the heavens could meet with human beings like us. And so, from the perspective of the average person who's a faithful Israelite who has returned from the exile, how they view it is, hey, we're back in the land, that's great. But being back in the land is only great insofar as we can build the temple again. And being, building the temple again is only great insofar as it allows us to once again be in God's presence and experience that. So fast forward now to Advent 2017. Here we are in the time of waiting, thinking about the two parts, waiting for Jesus, the celebration of his birth, and then waiting for him to return and make things right once and for all. And in a sense, what we're waiting for is for Jesus to come back and take us out of our exile that we're in here on this earth and bring us to our final resting place, our final home, that land where we will live in a temple where his God's presence will dwell like the waters covering the sea and we'll be there forever and ever with him in a place we call heaven ordinarily. But I want to ask you, what's your great treasure there? When you picture heaven... What's your great treasure that you're looking forward to there? Is it streets of gold or pearly gates? Being reunited with loved ones? A new body? As great as all those things are, none of those is the great hope, the great treasure that we have awaiting us in heaven. According to scripture, the great treasure that we have awaiting us in heaven is God himself, his presence where we'll be forever and ever. And just like the temple in Ezra's day, their great hope for the temple was to be in God's presence. That's the same hope we have in the days to come when we get to dwell with God in his presence forever. So if you and I today think about heaven, 
and we don't consider God himself to be our great treasure there, I want to suggest that it may not be heaven that we want at all. If a place with streets of gold and pearly gates and being reunited with your loved ones is a great idea to you, sounds like heaven to you, even if God isn't there, then maybe what you want isn't heaven. Maybe it's something else. Maybe just a point to illustrate before we go on. When uh, I was growing up, and still today, my dad has been a football coach my whole life, in college, in the NFL, and there are a lot of perks about that. It's a really great life for a young boy growing up um, in a lot, a lot of ways. You get a lot of free gear. You get to see your dad on TV. Uh, when they're winning, everybody's patting you on the back and thinking you're great. Um, you get to meet some famous people. It's wonderful overall. But as a kid, what I wanted more even than all the perks of having a dad who is a football coach was I wanted my dad himself. My mom saved this picture um, of when I was a little kid, and she said this is what I would do is uh, in the off-season when he would get home when it was still light outside, uh, I would just go sit on the porch. Sometimes a long time before he was coming home, I didn't care. She would give me a cup of water, and I would just sit out there watching the cars to see when Daddy's car is coming home. And I would just wait and wait, and when his car pulled in the driveway, I'd go run into him and jump into his arms. I was so excited to be with my dad. Being with him was greater than all the perks that could have been of being a coach's son. And I wonder if maybe that's just a picture of what our life here in this time of in-between, between Christ's first coming and his second coming, I wonder if this is a picture of what it's meant to be like. That all the perks of being a Christian and being one of God's family, those are all great, but none of them are as great as the privilege of getting to be in the presence of God himself. That's our ultimate hope that we look forward to. So that's presence. The second one is obedience. And we see there's a command here that is lived out by these people. Do God's will in everything he has prescribed. Do God's will in everything he has prescribed. Where I'm getting that is these people are being meticulous in their rebuilding process. And what I mean is they're being meticulous in following God's word as to how this rebuilding process should take place. There's a phrase in verse 10. It says, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. They're following the directions to the letter. And that specifically there in verse 10 is talking about their musical worship. But if you go back to Chronicles and you walk through the prescriptions for building the temple, you'll see that it's a perfect match to what's going on here in the building process. They're following, they're going back to the scriptures, seeing how the temple is supposed to be built according to God's command, and they're following it to the letter. You can imagine why they're being so diligent about following it to the letter. It was breaking God's commands in the first place. They had them sent into exile, wasn't it? It was playing loose with God's commands, um, taking them lightly, maybe thinking that God didn't care so much if we break a command here or there. That kind of attitude had them sent into exile. And so now, as they're coming back into the land, and they're rebuilding the temple in Ezra 3, despite all the challenges they're facing, they're committed to not making that same mistake again. They're going to follow God's command to the letter. So I guess the question for us is uh, just a straightforward one. As we wait for Jesus' return, are we playing loose with God's commands? Or... Do we have a desire to obey his commands, even to the letter that's every bit as meticulous as the people of Israel's desire was to obey his commands in rebuilding the temple? Are we searching the scriptures day after day to 
seek guidance for how to live our lives? And are we so soaked in these scriptures that when an ethical situation comes up that isn't specifically covered here, we're so saturated in God type of thinking that we make the right decision in a moral and ethical plane? Presence, obedience. Third is worship. And we see indicated here that the worship of a community sets its course. The worship of a community sets its course. This takes us uh, a step deeper than the previous point. In the previous point, we were saying that it was Israel's disobedience that had them sent into exile. And in a sense, that's definitely true. But when you read the Old Testament scriptures, you see that always below that disobedience, there was another layer of what's going on. It was false worship. And the false worship was causing the disobedience, which caused God to send them into exile, right? The deeper problem is the false worship. And so as the leaders of the community come back, as that first wave comes home to the promised land again, they are going to set a new course for the nation, one that they hope will take them someplace better than exile. And the new tone they're trying to set is one of true worship instead of false worship. What is true worship? True worship involves at least two things. One would be worshiping in the way that God has prescribed. And we saw in the last point that they're doing exactly that. But the second part of true worship is also saying things in our worship that are true about God, right? And they do that in at least two ways here in this text. Um, You can see in verse 11, they are praising him for what he's done. You see the last clause of that verse, verse 11? It says they're praising him because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So praising him for what he's done, what he's accomplished in history, in their recent history, and presumably in their past history. But they don't just praise him for what he's done, they also praise him for who he is. Look at the content of the lyrics in verse 11. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. They are praising him for who he is as well as what he's done. And that word forever is huge there in verse 11 because in this context... Forever is indicating, God, we trust you that you are going to be the same God you've always been, and you're going to do the same kinds of things you've always done for us, even in the future, just like you've done in the past. You've helped us lay the foundation of this temple, fulfilling your promises. We're trusting you that you're going to continue fulfilling your other promises that are yet unfulfilled. That's true worship. And so maybe it's not surprising to us that we see that the worship leaders here are actually also leaders of the community as a whole. Did you notice that dynamic that was going on? Take a look at verse 10 and who the leaders of the musical worship are. They're the Levites. That's been true throughout Israel's history. But then if you rewind back to verse 8, the ones who are leading the building efforts are also the Levites. The worship leaders are put in charge of the building efforts as well. And there's something in that for us, I think. The word supervisors... Throughout this text, uh, Robbie's getting really excited over here, so I don't want to push too far. Uh, the supervise, the word supervisor here, that's a verb to supervise that in its noun form in the Psalms comes across as choir director. That's how it's translated. There's some leading of the community at large that's going on by the worship leaders. Um, what they're doing is so important here, and it goes beyond just making sure the instruments are in tune and the people are singing in harmony with each other. They believe, rightly, that the way the community worships will set the tone for that community's future. 
what's at stake is the whole future direction of the community. So I guess the question for us is this. How is your personal worship setting the course for your life? Or actually an even better, more direct application from this text, which is in a communal focus, is if you have a family, how is your family's worship setting the course for your family's future? Somebody might say, well, actually our family doesn't worship that much, unfortunately. Or those of you who have roommates, our roommates, we don't really worship together very much. You do. It's just a question of what you worship and how you worship that, right? Like we talked about in our worship series last year, you may be worshiping comfort or leisure or entertainment, but you're worshiping something, and you're doing it day after day after day. So what kind of course are you setting for the community that you're part of by the way that you worship together? If we're singing together and praying together and thanking God together as a family, that's going to set a gospel-shaped course for our family's future. I saw this illustrated so beautifully just this past week. My best friend has a four-year-old son with Down syndrome. And he has just started to become verbal. He's developing a vocabulary. It's so exciting. Um, And he texted me. He's like, hey, you'll never believe what Garrett is choosing to do with his time now. Day after day, hour after hour. He sent me a video. And there's Garrett in the middle of the room, just going about his day. Little sister is there watching him, looking up to big brother. And then Garrett just stops what he's doing, closes his eyes real tight, folds his hands, and just starts praying in the middle of the room. And I couldn't really hear what he was saying on the video, but then at the end he goes a big, amen. He said, I can't believe it. My son's just doing this. This is, he's just starting to talk, and this is what he's deciding to do at this time. And I just thought, you know, What a powerful picture of worship setting the course for a family's life. Because there's little sister looking up to big brother who's choosing to spend his time, not when mommy and daddy ask him to, but just going about the house, raising up prayers to God. And big brother's doing that because somewhere along the way, he figured out that mommy and daddy aren't just praying to God because they have to, because it's the delight of their hearts. And so he wanted it to be the delight of his heart as well. What about your family? What about the communities you're a part of? What is your corporate worship? What kind of tone and course is it setting for your future direction? We've seen presence. We've seen obedience. We've seen worship. And finally, we see waiting. You know, it's the title of our series. And uh, what we see here is that God's people look forward to his promises coming true. God's people look forward to his promises coming true. During the exile, God made some lofty promises through his prophets. He made promises that a pagan king would see fit to help them get back into their homeland. That's crazy. He made promises that the temple would be rebuilt again, that there, there would one day be a king sitting on David's throne again. Huge promises. And so now, as they're back, they give a shout in verse 11, and I think part of what that shout is that continues all the way through verse 13 is that God's promises are coming true. What he's saying is starting to actually happen, and we don't deserve it because of what we did, the sin in our hearts that led us into exile. But just like the rejoicing in verse 11 is based on God's promises and tied to God's promises, 
The weeping in verse 12, I think, is also tied to God's promises. You notice that weeping there, right? It says, many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Why they're weeping is, in part, this isn't living up to the grand hopes that they had for it. As they're seeing the foundation of the rebuilt temple being laid, they remember, these people are old enough to remember Solomon's temple, the grand glorious temple, and they know this isn't measuring up. Just as a graphic demonstration, um, here is Solomon's temple. Here's what the rebuilt temple looks like according to you know, artist reconstructions and what archaeologists think. It's not nearly as glorious. Um, and they can tell as the foundation is being laid that this isn't going to live up. It's not going to live up to promises the prophets made all along. There are a bunch that I could put up here. This is just a short one, so I used it. Haggai made this promise. He was a contemporary of these people. And here's what he prophesied. He said, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. In other words, one day this house, this temple, will be even greater than it was in the days of Solomon. This is a promise that these people have heard, not just from Haggai, but from other prophets. And now they're laying the foundation, and they're looking at it, and they're weeping, because they remember Solomon's house, and this isn't it. So where do we go with that? Does God's promise fail? Is God's word fallen short? No, God's promises never fail. These promises made by Haggai and others were always meant to direct the people of Israel toward a day of future ultimate fulfillment. In other words, this promise in Haggai chapter 2 verse 9 was never meant to be fulfilled in the temple that was being built in Ezra 3. This promise was going to one day be ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ who on Christmas came as a human being and became in his body, if you can imagine this, if your mind isn't blown by it, he became the great temple that they were waiting for where unlike any human structure that's ever been made in human history, God and human met in one place. Furthermore, that wasn't even the only ultimate fulfillment of this. It's going to be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth where we dwell in a heavenly temple that is far greater than the glory that Solomon's temple ever could have dreamed of having. Ezra's temple, the temple in Ezra's day, was a partial fulfillment of it, but they weep because they realize there's more to come and this isn't going to completely, fully, this isn't the ultimate that they were waiting on. If you can bear with, though, or think about one more layer of reflection on this temple theme, though. Hundreds of years, um, 500 years after Ezra, Paul comes along and he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, some stunning words. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He's speaking to us Christians in the days after Jesus and he's saying that in a sense we actually are God's temple, the fulfillment of this theme in scripture, these promises that were to come. But that makes some of us stop and think, well, if this was going to be God's temple where he wanted to put his glory on display, where divinity and humanity would meet, uh, it's a little shabbier than I thought it would be, right? We're splintered into thousands of denominations. We are divided with one another over 
race and class and politics and everything else we can think of to divide over. We as a church are clamoring for positions of more visibility as if we're two stones on the temple and we're mad at one person for being more visible in the temple at eye level than us when we're under the ground. But I think the hope for us as we reflect like that is the same as the hope was in Ezra 3. That the day's coming when the ultimate fulfillment is going to take place. When it will be more glorious than Solomon's temple. That the latter glory of the temple will exceed the former. What we've seen fulfilled in part right now will be fulfilled in full in the future. When we come before our Savior as his glorious bride. Pure and spotless. It's coming. So maybe our big idea is just this. Let us obediently worship in God's presence as we await Christ's return. And if you were here last week, remember Pastor Craig's sermon. This flows right out of it. Just as Pastor Craig was telling us last week that we can have hope for the future because of the character of God. Well, of course we worship a God like that. Of course we worship a God like that. That's the natural outflow of finding hope like we did in Pastor Craig's sermon last week and like the people in Ezra 3 did. Uh, as the temple was being rebuilt. But as you know, as we worship here in the in-between, it's going to involve mixed emotions. It's not going to be the plastered-on smiles type of experience. We're going to experience both weeping and rejoicing, and we've seen today that that's nothing new in our day and age. They were experiencing it in Ezra 3. And actually, that wasn't when it started back in Ezra 3. It started way back in Genesis 3, when everything went wrong in the garden. And ever since Genesis 3, if you walk your way through Scripture, you see God's people have pretty much been waiting all along for something or other. First, they were waiting to get back into Eden. Eventually, they were waiting to get out of slavery in Egypt. Then they were waiting for the return from exile. Then they were waiting for the temple to be built. Then they were waiting for Messiah. Every point along the way, it seems like they're waiting for something. As you read along, you might start to wonder, is all this waiting pointing to something? Some ultimate day when there will be no more waiting? Some ultimate day when all of our waiting will be fulfilled in full? And when you get to the last two chapters of the Bible, you see that, yeah, that's exactly what was happening. We've been waiting all along for these temporary things, but the waiting has ultimately been pointing us to the day when we get to dwell with our Heavenly Father and with Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship and community in His heavenly temple, the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. And until then, we rejoice in what He's already done, and we do weep over what has not yet taken place. I want to give one caveat before we close, because I feel like there might be someone here this morning who is thinking, you know what? Um... This doesn't really apply to me. I'm not the weeping or rejoicing type. I'm just not a very emotional person at all. So that's not part of my experience. Of course, we all do have different personalities. Um, some of us are less emotional than others. But I want to just raise two questions. If you're that sort of person who thinks I'm just not emotional, weeping or rejoicing isn't part of my faith experience. Uh, first, I want to ask myself, is my faith really getting my whole self-engagement? In other words, am I not weeping and rejoicing because I'm not emotional? Or am I not weeping and rejoicing because I'm not really engaged with my whole self? If it's the latter, it's not a personality issue, it's an engagement issue, and that's a problem. 
But question number two is for if you answer the first question, yes. You're like, yeah, I, I'm fully engaged in my faith. I'm just not a weeper or a rejoicer. Okay. But let's ask ourselves this. Does whole self-engagement cause rejoicing or weeping in other areas of my life? For example, the Cubs are in the playoffs and they hit a walk-off home run. Do I stand up from the couch and put my hands in the air and yell and slap fives with everybody around me, right? If I do, then my lack of weeping and rejoicing over the things of God isn't really a personality issue, is it? It's an issue of what I treasure most. And I do express emotion at the things I treasure most. The things I treasure most just aren't the things of God. Let's become a church. We already are to an extent. But let's become even more a church. A group of people who worships obediently while we wait. And insofar as it's appropriate to weep in that and to rejoice in that, let's not mask it. Let's allow that to happen in glory to God. Hey, if you're here this morning and you haven't yet trusted Jesus, but something that you heard in God's word this morning was tugging on some of the deepest yearnings of your heart, I want to make sure you know this morning what the basis of our hope is. The basis of our hope is that that baby Jesus who came on that first Christmas that we celebrate during this season, he came and lived a perfect life. And at the end of it, he died in your place and in my place to take the penalty for sin that you and I deserved. See, what we deserved is to be separated from God forever, alienated from him, punished eternally. But Jesus came and made a way for us to be reconciled to God, to be able to spend eternity with him by taking that punishment for us on the cross. And because he died and rose again, we have all of us, every single one of us this morning, has the opportunity to respond to that in faith. It's not a gift that you receive by making yourself a better person or doing a bunch of good things to earn your way there. It's a free gift that's received just by faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. If that's a gift that you want to hear more about, that you're interested in, if you feel something pulling in your heart today, please don't even leave this room this morning until you talk to myself or Pastor Craig, one of the elders, the person who brought you, talk to somebody about it. Tell us. We'd love to talk, you, talk to you more about it and pray with you as well. Let me pray now. Heavenly Father, you're coming again, Jesus. You're coming back for your own. You're coming back to take us to a temple that will never be destroyed. It will never fade. We'll get to be in your presence forever. Lord, to the extent that we don't treasure that like we should, to the extent that your good news of what you did for us doesn't cause us to rejoice, to the extent that our loved ones being separated from you doesn't cause us to weep, Lord, change our hearts. Help us to catch a glimpse of you so glorious that we treasure you above all else. Go before us as we walk through this journey of waiting that involves weeping and rejoicing. Bring us safely to your heavenly home. In Jesus' name, amen.